most people know, here know, I've had a more intimate engagement with the legal system this week than I uh, would really like. I, um, on Tuesday, my bag was stolen and I had the keys in the bag and then the person got into the um, uh, house and stole my Mac computer, which is why I'm using this one instead tonight. Um, but I have to say, uh, it, to see the meticulous way in which the police go about their business, investigating and constructing a case, is, is actually quite impressive. Uh, they're very careful to make sure all the evidence is properly recorded and all hangs together and makes sense. And, um, of course, right back in the Law of Moses, there was this uh, passage, um, which is basically a passage about how a, a court should be conducted in, under Mosaic Law, and uh, the important thing is that one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offence he must have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the, um, obviously the implication here is that two is an absolute minimum, but three would be good. And it seems that uh, John has this passage in mind um, in his letter because um, there's a lot about testimony and a lot about um, investigation and um, in particular 1 John 5 verse 7 says there are three that testify the spirit the water and the blood and the three are in agreement well notice of course the idea was that uh, the judges would question the witnesses and make sure their testimony agreed and if, if they didn't then of course the testimony was invalid um, we'll look later on in the, um, what that actually means about those three witnesses. That's the thing actually that, that there's some dis debate over. But just look at for the moment the fact that it's three, three witnesses. Um, and in fact, if you have an authorised version, it, uh, it, says, it also says something about the three that bear witness in heaven. Now, actually, that's almost certainly not in the original text, and it's been put on as a gloss later. Yet it does, even that shows that whoever was reading it had picked up on this importance of there being the three witnesses. Because we live in a society, don't we, in which the only certainty is that nothing is certain. And then we're told that faith involves believing six impossible things before breakfast. Well, everybody quotes that. Um, I was reading a book, the, the book uh, Who Made God, and he, says that he quotes that and says, I have, to, uh, you know, I have to admit that everybody on the rights on this debate quotes that. It's an Alice Through the Looking Glass, I think. Yes, um, certainly, certainly one of the Alice books. Um, but that's not what faith is about, and it's certainly not what John thinks faith is about. Faith is about testimony. Certainty is about testimony. John's having none of this. None of this. He writes his letters so that we should be absolutely clear and convinced about what the gospel is and what our place is within it. Um, so, just before we dive in, uh, let me just uh, mention a bit of the background. There are three letters attributed to John by ancient history, ancient testimony of ancient tradition. Um, they're actually anonymous. None of them is actually sort of signed, as it were, by John. Um, this first one just says, that was from the beginning which we have heard, which certainly suggests it's one of the apostles. Um, the other two letters actually are 
addressed from somebody called the elder. Now that has caused some confusion because again the Christian histories do mention somebody else called John the elder but but uh, most scholars are agreed this, that the message of these letters is clearly the same. They're clearly by the same author, and the theology is so close to that of John's gospel that it must be that they're written by John the apostle, who, of course, also wrote John's gospel and the um, book of Revelation. John, as I already mentioned, remember James and John in the gospels always appear together, the sons of thunder, and yet James was the first of the twelve, other than Judas, of course, James was the first of the twelve to die. Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, it says in Acts. James was the first of the apostles to die. John almost certainly was the last. Uh, the letters were probably written from Ephesus, because we know that John spent a lot of time in Ephesus in his later life. They're probably quite late in terms of New Testament literature and again when we look at later on at some of the heresies that John seems to be addressing we'll see that that's part of the reason for thinking it was written quite late. Um, but we won't go into that today. We'll just try and get a, um, some sort of overview or introduction as to what John's letters are about and what he really wants us to know. Good. Ah, wake up. No, it won't change slides. Do it that way. Ah, that just makes it bigger. Ah. <coughs> so I suggest that as we come to the epistles, you keep the number three in mind. Uh, we've already seen the three witnesses. There are, of course, three letters, although you might perhaps think of them as one letter and two appendices. The theme of them is very much the same, but the, the last two are very short and just much more personal. And we've already seen that uh, John seems to be thinking about this first, where it says there should be three witnesses, the Mosaic law. And... Um, Certainly there should be more than one witness. And notice that actually quite a lot of the um, epistle, for instance, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command. It's written in the singular. But this first passage is written in the plural. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John wants us to be clear that it's not just something he's made up. The we, I'm not exactly sure who the we is of course, but we assume that it refers to the um, other apostles and the other disciples who had literally witnessed the life of Christ and the events surrounding it so the letter is not written by a committee and yet this first section is written in the plural just to emphasize the point it's not just I John John saying this we all the apostles witnessed this we know what we're talking about and you notice also that uh, three senses are involved as well 
We heard it, we saw it and examined it closely, and we touched it even. It's interesting that it's not enough that, um, for me to just give them a description of the, the items that were taken from me. I actually have to look at them and perhaps I even have to touch them and say, yes, that's definitely my phone, that's definitely my uh, uh, cards or bag or whatever. One sense perhaps could be um, misled or deceived. It could be a madness or a hallucination. But says John, we didn't just hear voices or see visions. This all happened in, as a matter of history in the real world. And it doesn't often talk about we touched it, but it does here, and perhaps that's because touching something is, in many ways, the, the most difficult sense to fool. Um, if you get hold of something, feel it, then you know it's solid. It's there. And John says we actually uh, grabbed hold of it. This happened as his history in the real world and we saw, heard it and we saw it and we touched it. We used our three senses there. Um, actually, three occurs quite often. You'll notice, for instance, in chapter 2, 12 to 14, he talks about three categories of hearers. He talks about children, young men and fathers. Um, I'm not going to go into that again now. We'll come back to that later. But the, the, the threeness is... Uh, quite repetitive in, in John. Um, why did John write his letters? Well, he's not going to leave us any doubt of that either. In fact, he tells us. I have to cheat a little to make it three here because uh, he actually says, I'm writing to you four times. But um, there are three outcomes together with a warning. So the first thing, he says, I'm writing this to make our joy complete, 1 John 1 verse 4. It says our joy, and if you look at the footnote, some manuscripts say your joy. Um, our joy seems more difficult, so it's probably correct to say the scholars say and given two possible versions, the more difficult one is probably the correct one. because Somebody thought they ought to change it, so it probably is our joy. But I don't think it matters too much. The point is that the result of this gospel is supposed to be joy. I'm not writing to make you miserable or to make us miserable, and I'm not writing because I'm really fed up with you a lot, and I'm not writing because I think you know, I'm going to say this, but I know you're going to take no notice. No, he says, I'm writing this that we can rejoice together. It's a matter of joy. Joy is what we're target is. And then in 1 John 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children... <clears throat> I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He wasn't going to leave that out, but he does say, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin, so that you will live consistently and coherently in your Christian life. And then in 1 John 5, verse 13 perhaps the most, in one sense, the most important one of all because it's kind of the theme of the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. So that you may know what? You may know that you have eternal life. It's about assurance, in other words. 
You know, you may hope or think that you have eternal life, but I want you to know it. I want you to be quite clear and certain on this. So that's why John writes the letter. He wants us to know that we have eternal life and he wants us to live consistently with that knowledge. And when we do that, he wants the result to be joy, both for those who preach the gospel and to those who received it. But actually, the phrase I'm writing these things does occur once more, so I have to cheat a little to make it three in this case, because there is also a warning. And that's in 1 John 2, verse 26. It says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. There are those who are trying to confuse you, to make your knowledge less certain, to make lead you into sin or to uh, make you miserable. For what we glean from the letters and from the external history, we, John's opponents here were not the Jewish circumcision party who um, Paul wrote against so much, but um, some form of Gnostic heresy. And there are all sorts of different Gnostic heresies around, but uh, they, what they had in common is that they devalue the physical. And that's again another reason probably why John says, I touched it. It wasn't some spiritual airy fairy thing. I got my hands on it. And, I, and um, John is warning them that you know, if they believe the lie, then their joy will be destroyed and they'll fall into sin. Um, and he tells them to be skeptical. In 1 John 4, 1 to 2, he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now we may read that and quite slightly miss the point. The important word there is in the flesh. Uh, that it's not that the Messiah has come in some mystical sense, in some sort of super pseudo-spiritual sense, um, a spirit that says that is not the spirit of Christ, is not the spirit of the gospel. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and a spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, with all that entails, it's not just a case of just mouthing the words, of course, because the devil is perfectly capable of lying, but a spirit that um, that's genuinely points to the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is from God. The Gnostics didn't believe that anything spiritually good could come from the flesh. Perhaps that's why Jesus, as I've already said, emphasizes touch in his introduction. The Christ was someone you could get hold of. You could put your arm around, you could put your fingers into his wounds as Doubting Thomas did. John is very keen that we should have sure knowledge. Um, 1 John concludes with three things that we should know um, in 5.18 to 20. Um, I won't read that now, but uh, there are also three things there. We'll look at that later. Um, remember what Jesus said to Thomas, John's Gospel, 20, 29 to 31. Because you've seen me, you have believed... Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Although John says we are blessed in a sense if we have not touched and believed, we are blessed because we believe the message, and yet it is important that Thomas was able to touch the wounds of Christ. John, that touched the risen body, wasn't some ghost that you could put your hand through. Thomas was actually able to touch the risen Christ, and it seems that John says he had touched as well. And it was important that um, John knew that he'd touched. And um, the gospel finishes with a public endorsement. This is the disciple, John, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Again, there are other witnesses who are agreeing with John in the gospel. And I think, again, John is keen in his letters to make the point that it's not just him. We know that his testimony is true. So, what are the themes, as it were, of the letters? I don't think um, perhaps John makes this explicitly, but I think there are, there are actually three aspects to it as well. <coughs> First of all, what is the true gospel? Secondly, is that gospel true? And then thirdly, am I truly in the gospel and the gospel is, in, is the gospel in me? Now notice that one or two are not necessarily exactly the same thing. Um, for instance, if I read Marx and Lenin and um, Engels very carefully, I could probably work out from those books what the true message of communism is. But I wouldn't necessarily, by doing that, endorse that as a message that I believe to be true. So there are two aspects to it. First of all, what is the true gospel? But, you know, it might be the true gospel. It might be the true message of Marxist-Leninism or something, but is that message a true one or not? And then finally, the existential, the post, what the postmoderns would want to start with, of course, what does it mean to me? But John doesn't start with that, but he does finish there. What does that gospel mean to me? How do I relate to it, and how does it relate to me? Postmoderns would make, uh, put three first and make one, and especially two, unimportant. But uh, for John, you can only answer three if you're solid on one and two first. Otherwise, you're going to get deceived. But although there are these three separate things and three separate sort of aspects of the truth that John is going to talk about, he also wants to make the point that you can't really answer any of those questions without answering the other two as well. So look, for instance, at this verse, 1 John 1.8, one of the ones we read. Let's uh, perhaps expand that phrase a bit. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we could expand that a bit and say, if we claim to be without sin, then we're making a theological error. And the result of that is that we deceive ourselves because we believe something that isn't true. 
And what is the result of that? The result of that is that the truth is not in us. So the gospel is useless to us because we've believed something that isn't the true gospel and we believe something that isn't true. So while there are those three aspects, um, he always puts them together. You can't really um, answer one without answering the other. And yet, in a sense, you do have to answer them separately and you have to emphasize those three things. But they're all related, of course. And then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. In other words, he puts the opposite. If we confess our sins, if we get the gospel right, then he will forgive us and justify us. But then he says, but if we claim we haven't sinned, he says the same thing again, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. The gospel is not effective for us. So how do we know? Well, John gives three tests of what we might call true Christianity or true, uh, um, the genuine article. So um, in, in those three, I would suggest are obedience, love, and doctrinal truth. And they're all um, there in John, and yet they're all uh, twisted together. So 1 John 2 verse 4, he says, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if he's not obedient to the commands, then he doesn't have the truth in him. And then John's great theme of love, 1 John 2, 9 to 10, <coughs> Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. So love is always at the center of everything that John has to say. And then there's doctrinal truth. So 1 John 2 verses 21 to 23 says the following. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So he says in these three things, if you have, don't have any of these things, then you're not in, you're excluded. The truth isn't in you. But he also says, if you do have these, then in a sense you have all the others as well. Um, because the truth is in you and is effective and you live in the light. But they're not separable, these things, really, although we can separate them out, and yet they're always plaited together. And if you just turn over a few pages to 2 John, so 2 John uh, verses 5 and 6 says the following, now, dear lady, uh, is that the right verse? Hang on. Um, sorry, I meant four to six. Sorry, let's start at verse four. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, 
but one which we had from the beginning, I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Notice how those three aspects of truth, love and obedience are plaited together so intimately that you'd have difficulty getting them apart. They're all there though, and yet they're all mixed and plaited in together. So in one sense, although we can separate these three aspects of John's message, love of doctri- uh, obedience, love and doctrinal truth, and in fact, in the next few studies, we are going to separate them out and focus on one or the other. But in a sense, you have the package. It's the package is all or nothing. You know, it's not a case of two out of three ain't bad. You uh, have to have all of them, because if you haven't got all of them, you haven't got any of them. Well, so that's... Uh, coming to the, towards the end of my uh, introduction to John's letters here but um, there's just one more point I'd like to note we've been studying Romans haven't we and Romans is all about justification by faith isn't it it's the, the main theme really of Romans I mean it's expanded at great length but the basic theme of Romans is that we are justified by faith <coughs> you might think from our English translations that John doesn't talk about faith in fact I think in the NIV the word faith only occurs once but um, that's actually really just um, a quirk of our English language and our English translations because in English belief and faith can can have slightly different meanings faith is obviously a noun and it's uh, usually refers to the state of being in belief so it's a, it's a thing about the state you're in you have faith is a description of the state you're in there is no proper verb you can get from faith in English there's only the rather clunky to put your faith in or to something like that which is obviously no good for the point of view of translation so the translators use the verb used to believe and of course we're further confusing because when we talk about we get another noun from believe of course in English which is belief but belief tends to refer more to the content of what we believe you know we have a, a, a doctrinal statement a list of the things that we believe like a creed um, but in English in, in Greek those concepts are not separate and there is only one word um, there's the I'm attempt to pronounce the Greek I'm not good at, I'm a Greek scholar as you know but the noun is pistis which we get our words like epistemology of course the noun is pistis which is usually translated faith although it can also mean belief the, the content of faith and the verb is pistiro which means to believe and we remember that Jesus himself when he talked about justification by faith used the verb form he said the work that God uh, requires is to believe the one he has sent which is saying the same thing but in the verb form instead of using the term faith and this separation just doesn't exist in the Greek the, the, it's the same root, the same noun and verb 
And um, the noun form can mean both the state of being in belief and the um, content of that belief. And I think quite intentionally, really, the um, New Testament writers don't separate those. So um, James, when he talks about justification by faith, saying you believe uh, there is one God, well, even the devils believe that. It's the content of your belief, what you're really putting your trust in that matters here. And I think when we talk about justification by faith, and of course we need to do that, it's central to the gospel, but... Um, we need to remember that what it means is that in which we put our trust. We're not really justified by faith. We are justified through the content of that faith when we put our trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the, uh, the rest of the gospel content. So John certainly does believe in justification by faith, but he just tends to expresses in slightly different words and it's good that he does really because otherwise we get in trouble when we get these new perspective on Paul people say even respected New Testament scholars like N.T. Wright conservative scholars say did, you know, is that really what Paul meant well we have it in different words here and, it's, and at the end of the first letter we get this chiasm <coughs> which says exactly that he says that everyone who believes, I'll read it off here actually because I've spread out the chiasm there. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, in other words, puts his faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Why are his commands not burdensome? Because everyone born of God overcomes the world. And how do we know that we're born of God? Well, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I say this is the only time that I think the noun faith occurs here, but it's the same. It's those who believe are those born of God. He's not saying that belief results in being born of God because that wouldn't make sense um, and the other scriptures teach otherwise but what he is saying is your belief is the very evidence the fact you put your trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very evidence that you are born of God Jesus said unless you're born you can't see the kingdom of heaven you can't understand it you can't get a grip on it so if you are believing and if you have understood why Jesus came and who he was and that is evidence that you're born of God. But there's also the practical existential evidence as well. The fact that you love the Father you, and you love the children, that you're obedient to the commands of Jesus and the commands of the Father. How do we love show our love? We obey the commands of God and the fact that his commands are not burdensome to obey the commands of God if we love him are not burdensome to obey the commands of a hated ruler or master is burdensome we may be forced to do it but we don't want to but if we love God then we will be rejoicing in doing his commands and so even the joy comes in here at least implicitly because he says it won't be a burden to us it won't be a struggle
And if we are born of God, then we overcome the world. How do we overcome the world? Well, what exactly does that mean? Um, well, perhaps again, he's thinking of those words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's saying you, in a sense, escape from the world. You overcome it in that sense. And how do you do that? Which is the victory that has overcome the world? Our faith. It's, in a sense, it's, it's circular as... Um, these chiasms often are. They all go together. In a sense, you can start anywhere, but you go all the way around. <laughs> if you love the Father, then you're born of God, and you believe. If you believe, you're born of God, and you love the Father. So if you believe, to summarize that, if you believe and put your trust in the provision that God has made through Jesus, victory has been promised. So in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack these letters a, a bit more. But I could almost stop there and say, well, if you've, if you've read that bit, you've read all of John's letters, but we won't. We will look at it in more detail, because he does have a lot more to say about how this works out in practice. And so, uh, but if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that shows we're born of God, we can know then that we will overcome the world. So let's uh, sing another.